morning, Bethel. So, <clears throat> I had kind of a cheap introduction. Um, I'm going to scrap that and just share how th- th- this will, I think, set up our text here in 1 Corinthians 11. Why, why did God give us a meal like this where we could taste and touch and smell even um, these elements? I'll, I'll say it again later, but I think it's to really, <laughs> really tell us that he wants it to be real. He wants these truths, this love, this grace to be really real to us. He wants to remind us of how real it is. And I don't know about you, but certainly gatherings like this on Sunday should do that. Yesterday, um, I had a moment where, it was a little more than a moment, um, my family knows this, I just lost my temper. It was ugly. And I had to kind of deal with my own sin and just thinking, oh, I can't believe I let that just break out that way. And I'm trying to believe the gospel in that moment. And one of the thoughts I had is um, I was looking forward to today. Because I've said this before in the past, but um, we intentionally structure the service to repeatedly preach the gospel, not just in the message, but in the songs and in what's shared in between the songs, the scripture readings. And so just like an instrument player can get out of tempo and he needs a metronome to get back in sync with the rhythm of the song, we oftentimes get out of sync and we need to get in rhythm with the gospel and gathering weekly. We need it weekly Gathering regularly around the Lord's table is a reminder of how we need the gospel. So I don't know about you, but I came in this morning in need of grace, and I'm so glad that we sung the gospel over and over again. I am so glad. (laughs) It's just really, like, I'm so glad that there's this holy, holy, holy God that is the blessed Trinity. And this loving society just poured out that love and wants to call me into it, sinner that I am undeserving and just make me new and it's just wonderful and awesome amazing grace this is amazing the more we know how prone to wander we are how sweet it is that he will hold us fast he's our shepherd and he won't let go anybody need that reminder today and yes so we need it so we can come and gather and receive that we can give it to each other out in the hallway We can give it to each other in our home groups when we meet. We can give it to each other when we just land for lunch someplace together and talk. So thank you, um, people that led us in in song, um, musicians and, and everyone, Mark. And we need each other. And we need this regular reminder, and that's what this table is all about. So this morning, because of all that we have going on, the International Day of Prayer, and also we're receiving some new members at the end of the service, um, decided to pull out of Isaiah for a week and focus on the passage that we read from almost every month during communion, 1 Corinthians 11. And so if you aren't there already, please turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 
There's an outline in your bulletin and also... Um, You have a Kleenex. <laughs> and then also I think the points will be up on the uh, screen here. Thank you. So things, if you're familiar with the book of, of 1 Corinthians, you know that there was a lot of dysfunction in that church, um, which can be strangely encouraging. <laughs> That this was a real church with real Christians in it, and there was a lot of dysfunction. So um, every church is a under construction project until Jesus comes back. Um, so that's good news because we all are in need of of uh, renewal and reshaping and grace and correction. So, but things were a mess here, especially evident at their Lord's Supper gatherings. Okay. So Paul addresses them directly, and he doesn't have anything but correction for them. So let's look at it here together. First off, verses 17 to 22, who is this meal for? Verse 17, but in the the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul repeatedly addresses the Corinthians with this yes, but pattern. Okay, or an affirmation and then exhortation pattern. Um, just look back at the beginning of chapter 11. You'll see one example, very clear example of it. Look at verse 2. Now I commend you because you rem- remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I de- delivered them to you. But I want you to understand something. And then he goes on to instruct them. So he's not trying to butter them up. He's not trying to manipulate or flatter them. He's genuinely pointing out evidences of grace, and then he's also correcting them like a good pastor would, okay? But when it comes to their practice of the Lord's Supper, he's got nothing but rebuke and correction. So that's why it kind of sticks out there where he says, in the following instructions, I don't have anything good to say. (laughs) Um, Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He just goes right after it. So... Gathering together as a church family, especially to share the Lord's Supper, ought to be a time of receiving grace and spiritual nourishment. Um, We ought to go away better for it. But the way that the Corinthians were handling the Lord's Supper, they would have been better off not to celebrate it at all than celebrate it in the way that they had been doing. So what way was that? Well, look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. In Greek, that word is schismata, where we get the term schism, right? So there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So there's, instead of unity, there's divisions. Instead of fellowship, there's factions. And this factiousness in Corinth may actually betray the fact that some of their number are not the real deal. The way that we participate in the Lord's Supper is a really big deal. It can reveal who's real and who's posing. It can expose false false faith. Okay, so if there are divisions and factions and we continue to participate in the meal without concern, that's a big problem. Okay, we ought to deal with those things at the table, examining ourselves and and repenting where needed. So if we just go on and ignore those things, Paul's saying that's, that's a really concerning thing. 
Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? (laughs) Isn't that great? Paul says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Now, this feels a little foreign to us because when we participate in the Lord's table, we don't have a meal, okay? We have a token meal, right? They had a full meal. So if you read the book of Jude, for instance, verse 12, you'll see that they were sometimes called love feasts, okay? So the Last Supper, think about it this way, the Last Supper at which the Lord's Supper was instituted, remember Jesus' Last Supper with the disciples before he was crucified, the Last Supper at which the Lord's Supper was instituted was a Passover meal. And it was during the meal at two different points that the bread and the wine were given, along with the words that unpack the meaning that Jesus was assigning to the bread and the cup. So in Corinth, they had a meal, love feast. They would have said it was the Lord's Supper. But Paul tells them in no uncertain terms that it was not the Lord's Supper that they were eating. So there's a reason why it's called a love feast. It's supposed to reflect the love of God for his people, demonstrated and accomplished on the cross of Christ. And that love should change us as his people. And when we get together in local churches and are able to gather together, we're to love one another and be unified because God first loved us, right? So the Lord's Supper, the love feast of all places, should be a time of unity and fellowship and humility and not a feast intended to divide between the haves and the have-nots. So basically, the wealthier folks in the Corinthian church were reclining at table and having a great meal and even getting drunk while some of the poorer people were kind of off in another room and some of them are going hungry. It was just this ugly, you know, cliques and divisions and all this. No thought to those others who were in need, which was really a problem that evidenced a deeper, wider problem. Okay, so this was almost symptomatic of the the deeper problem of their worldly orientation. It was symptomatic of their pride and their selfishness, which is why we see those same issues in other places in the book. For instance, remember in chapter 12 where it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. See the pride there? Nor again the head to the feet. And Paul says repeatedly in 12 to 14 that your gatherings and your gifts are for building each other up, not tearing each other down. And so the more excellent way is the way of love. But instead, here, there's selfishness and pride that's reigning. And so look at what Paul calls it. It's a despising the church of God. You see it there in verse 22? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? I mean, neither of those things is in step with the gospel, which is what the meal is supposed to be all about. Like a, a, an embodiment almost like a parable of the gospel lived out. The Lord providing for us his own body to feed us and nourish us spiritually. This self-giving love, and it unifies us, and we all are around his table enjoying his grace. That's what the meal is supposed to be about, but here they're despising the church of God, humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So some were just acting as if this meal was all about them. Look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. 
kind of like imagine a picnic. Everybody brings their stuff. You know, did you have this happen when you were a kid in grade school? Who, who were you? Were you the envied or the envier? You know, I was the envier, I think. You know, those kids that really had those awesome lunches. Um, anyway, it's kind of like that. But, and you know what? It's just a little more sophisticated. But each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So you see the ugly self-focus, the indifference to the needy among them. Our context is different, okay? The Lord's Supper, the way we uh, participate in it, is a symbolic meal. And so we don't have the same evidences of division and hierarchy around the table because everybody eats the same thing, right? (laughs) The bread and the cup is the same for everyone. But we can be just as prone and in danger of the selfishness and pride that they were guilty of. So we need to examine our hearts and make sure that there's no church of God despising or humiliating the poor and marginalized, the have-nots among us. Okay, so Paul goes on to make sure they know whose meal this is and what it's all about. Look, look secondly at verses 23 to 26. Whose meal is this? Um, actually, before we hit 23, look at 20 and just see it. It's easy to just skip right past this, but when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You see it? This is the Lord's Supper. It belongs to Him. He instituted it. He is the head of this household. He's the host of this meal. And Paul got his instructions from the Lord for the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when we gather at this table, what ought to be on our minds is what Jesus has done. It is all about him, which is really good news. Because when we think of what we've done, we're certainly not worthy to sit at the table of the King of Kings, the Holy, Holy, Holy Lord of hosts. But because of Jesus, what he has done for us, we can have a seat at his table. That is an incredible privilege, and we can celebrate it, be reminded of it. In even a tactile, tasteable sense, we can be reminded of that great privilege and celebrate it with thanksgiving today. So this meal is to be participated in in remembrance of Jesus because the meal is all about him. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is all about proclaiming the Lord's death. And what the Corinthians were doing, they were certainly not proclaiming the Lord's death. They were proclaiming their own pride and selfishness, which flies in the face of the meaning of the meal. So this meal is all about the Lord's loving humility and grace, not about selfish pride. So one thing that hit me, we're doing a marriage class right now. and the focus for this morning was Genesis 1 to 3. And in my prep, I ran into something that I'd never noticed before. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis 3, 6. You remember this? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband. She took and ate. And right there, everything goes wrong. The world just, I mean, just the shock waves are incredible. Look around. All the wreckage, all the, the darkness, all the brokenness, is, that's where it all started. She took 
and ate. So all of the sin and guilt and shame and death entered. Well, I read this comment by Derek Kidner earlier this morning. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. Eve took and ate. But Jesus tasted of poverty and humiliation and shame and death so that take and eat could become verbs of salvation. Isn't that awesome? Jesus in Matthew 26, they were eating. Jesus took bread after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. So the Lord's death on our behalf, that is the power to undo the curse. This is the death of death and all the effects of the curse. This is the source of true and everlasting life that we proclaim. Listen to this quote by Carl Truman. I love this. When I married a young couple in my congregation a few years ago, I commented in the sermon that all human marriages begin with joy but end in tragedy. Whether it is divorce or death, the human bond of love is eventually torn apart. The marriage of Christ and his church, however, begins with tragedy and ends with a joyful and loving union which will never be rent asunder. There is joy to which we point in our worship, the joy of the Lamb's wedding feast. But our people need to know that in this world there will be mourning, sadness, brokenness, sorrow. Not worldly mourning with no hope, but real mourning nonetheless, and we must make them ready for that. But the way that we are ready for that, the way that we endure that is with our eyes fixed on the great hope. We really will live happily ever after because of the ultimate marriage. So that's what this meal is doing for us. This meal is an appetizer for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus, our host, is saying, take, eat, and drink in hope. Feed your hope. Feed your confidence in my love, what I've done for you in the past. Taste. My promises are you can take them to the bank. Taste of the hope that's to come. I'll hold you fast. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. So eat and drink and hope. The best is yet to come. Taste hope today, Bethel, when you eat and drink. Drink in the grace of the gospel as we participate in the table. So no wonder we should proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So all that grace, all that hope, it's blood-bought. It's all the result of the death of Christ, which is the ultimate example of radical other-centered love. And we are the others that Jesus is oriented towards. So who's this meal for? Look again at verses 23 to 26. The Lord Jesus... On the night which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus came, laid down his life for us. Unlike the Corinthians and unlike us, God is not selfish and not arrogant. He is radically others-centered. So who is this meal for? It is for us, precisely because Jesus' death is for us. And so this very tangible, edible, drinkable ordinance is aimed at helping us remember and experience what is real. And we need that 
regularly. So it's such a grace that it comes regularly. It's this tactile, edible, imbibable. I think I just made that word up, okay? So it's a token of the reality of, of God, that he is for us. Listen to J.I. Packer. He has a little article called The Gospel and the Lord's Supper. We are to learn the divinely intended discipline of drawing assurance from the sacrament, from the Lord's table. We should be saying in our hearts, as sure as I see and touch and taste this bread and this wine, so sure it is that Jesus Christ is not a fancy, but a fact, that he is for real and that he offers himself to be my savior, my bread of life, and my guide to glory. He has left me this rite, this gesture, this token, this ritual action as a guarantee of this grace. He instituted it, and it is a sign of life-giving union with him, and I'm taking part in it. And thus I know that I am his, and he is mine forever. That is the assurance that we should be drawing from our sharing in the Lord's Supper every time we come to the table. So as we do prepare for the table, let me, answer, let me answer the question, who is this meal for? More generally as well, in preparation, we do this each time. So this table is for baptized believers in good standing in the church. What I mean by that is this. Baptism is, there are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the entrance rite of Christianity doesn't save you, but it's a picture of what God has done. So remember, Peter preached the sermon, what must, we, what, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you haven't participated in that initial ordinance, you shouldn't be participating in the ongoing ordinance. You're getting them out of order. It's like saying, I'd like the ongoing benefits, but I don't want to publicly identify as a follower of Christ. And then when I say a believer in good standing, I simply mean that, that you're not under any disciplinary action, okay? So if you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you're here. So don't feel awkward at all. There's no magic in this bread and juice. It won't help you in any superstitious or mystical way, okay? I'm not saying these things to make you feel awkward, but simply to be clear about the meaning of the table. So don't feel awkward to just let the bread and the juice pass, but for those of you who are believers in Christ, you're trusting him, he's your savior, when we do participate in the table, if, you, if, if he's your savior, you've publicly declared that faith in baptism, let's celebrate what this table means. Let's drink it in and, and watch the Lord strengthen us, nourish us by his grace. What an unbelievable privilege, undeserved privilege to be a Christian. Amazing grace has saved a wretch like me. We are now sons and daughters. We have a place at the, the table of our Heavenly Father, all because of the death of, of Jesus, His Son. And that all has implications for how we participate in the table. And really, broader than that, how we live and do all of life. The gospel should shape all of that. So, one final point, little recap. This, this is not just about who's this meal for. Think about it in broader terms. Who is your life for? Not your own selfish pleasure, like the Corinthians were living for their own selfish pleasure. 
not just whose meal is this, but whose life is this? Not yours. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. And then who is this meal for? Who is this new and everlasting life for? It is for you, amazing grace. All you have to do is receive it as a gift. Trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Which is why the gospel is the power to live radically other-centered lives. Which is our last point here. Who are we for? Verses 27 to 34. We ought to live for Jesus and for others. So for those who accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, this gospel has implications that ought to be reflected at the table and in our lives and in our gatherings. So yes, our context is different. For us, it's a symbolic meal. Everyone eats and drinks the same thing. So we don't have opportunity for those kinds of obvious divisions or haves and have-nots. But again, we're prone to the danger of selfishness and pride. And you know what? It can come in our lives, in our hearts, through factions and divisions of all sorts. Racial divisions. Socioeconomic divisions. Educational divisions. Old, young divisions. Hip, redneck divisions. White collar, blue collar. Theologically informed, more practically oriented divisions. Extrovert, introvert. Go with the flowers and engineers. Come on, I'm trying to contextualize here, you know? <laughs> Love the engineers. I do. Um, I can be kind of analytical myself. But do you see, is the unity that the gospel produces manifesting itself in our hearts and in our lives and in our relationships and in our home groups and in our interactions? So there shouldn't be those kind of factions and divisions. This table says no to all of that. And the death of Christ says, radical, other-centered love for you, producing humility and unity in you and radical others-centeredness in you for the world, for your brothers and sisters and for the world. So Christianity is radically others-oriented. We ought to be radically others-oriented. It ought to be reflected in the way that we gather and in the way we scatter. But all of it is because God God is radically others-oriented. Isn't that wonderful? 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And so this table, when you examine yourself, don't just have this little, like, me and Jesus thing. You need to consider the body. Is there any relational rift that I need to repair? Do you see? The examination is not just merely vertical. It ought to be horizontal as well because we're living out the implications of the gospel. So the table and our lunch afterward can reflect this. Hope you all can come. And I quoted J.F. Packer a minute ago. I love how this quote continues. Listen to this. And then we must realize something of our togetherness in Christ with the rest of the congregation. We should reject the strange, perverse idea that the Lord's Supper is a flight of the alone to the alone, 
capital A for God. It is my communion I come to make, not our communion in which I come to share. We should reject that. You can't imagine a more radical denial of the gospel than that. The communion table must bring to us a deeper realization of our fellowship together. I love this. This is his example, this elderly saint. If I go into a church for a communion service where not too many folk are present, to me it is a matter of conscience to sit beside someone else. This togetherness is part of what is involved in sharing in Eucharistic worship in a way that edifies. So maybe even as you pass the the plate, you should look the person beside you in the eyes and say, this is the body of Jesus for you. Because this is a communal meal. It's not just me and Jesus, don't, don't leave me alone, I've got to examine myself. Now we need to examine ourselves. But we also need to give thought to the body, our brothers and sisters. So are there any divisions? This is in preparation for participating in the table. Do you need to get something right with your spouse? With one of your kids? With a friend? With a former friend? You ever notice in Matthew 5, Jesus said, in the context of anger, he said, therefore, if you are presenting your offer, offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. It's not my, it's not my fault. It's not my problem. Oh, no, it's your problem. Leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. D.A. Carson says, people love to substitute ceremony for integrity purity and love, but Jesus will have none of it. Maybe the best thing that could happen is for you to just walk out right now because you need to make a phone call. I've done it before. It'd be more pleasing to Jesus. There'd be more grace in the reconciliation to go work that thing out than to go through the motions and just ignore that thing you need to deal with. That would be wonderful. Oh, people might see. What, people might see that you're a sinner like the rest of us and there's stuff that happens and we need to work it out and like reconcile? Hello, that's not, that shouldn't be news to anybody. That'd be great. So maybe some of you need to walk out this morning. That would be great. So as the men come forward now, if you're serving, if you could come forward, uh, Just take some time, and you'll also have some time as we distribute the elements. Ask the Spirit of the Lord to shine the searchlight in your heart. Is there anything I need to get right? Is there anybody I need to go talk to? Maybe you need to get up, grab somebody, and say, hey, can we go talk in the the lobby? But then also, let's remember what this table is for us. This is the Lord's commitment, the Lord's desire that his grace, his love, his promises be so, so real to us that we would be able to just drink it in and be 
our confidence would be increased in how he is for us because of Jesus' death for us. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll distribute both the bread and the juice. So just hold both of the elements until everyone's served. Um, We're going to sing a song. You're welcome to just sit quietly or participate in the song, and then we'll all eat together um, after everyone is served. Oh, Father, we thank you for your great love demonstrated for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Thank you for his body broken and his blood shed. Would you please make it real to us this morning? And Lord, where there might be divisions or factions or fractured relationships, would you please, by your spirit, convict and encourage people to do whatever they need to do to reconcile, at least so far as it depends on them. And may our fellowship, whether it's around the table or at the lunch or just our life together as a church family, may it reflect the power, the meaning, the beauty of the gospel, your radical, other-centered love. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.